Hello, everybody. My name is Jason West, and this is Pod Class. Today's episode is brought to you by the Cal State Long Beach College of Education and Educational Leadership Department. Did you know that the Educational Leadership Department at Cal State Long Beach is home to not one, not two, but three advanced degree programs? One such program is the Educational Leadership Doctorate Program, a three-year program designed for working professionals in PK-12 and higher education who want to further promote social justice in urban educational settings. What's particularly unique about the program is that higher ed and PK-12 students take many of their courses together, cue the We Are Family theme song, and they do this so they can learn together how to address problems across the educational spectrum. The program prides itself on providing high levels of support and practical knowledge so that students graduate on time and make a difference in their jobs. Interested in applying? Check out csulb.edu forward slash edld for dates and information. That's csulb.edu forward slash edld. Go beach, go teach, go lead. Today's tea is provided by Snapdragon and Thistle. Do you know where your teas come from? Don't worry, Snapdragon and Thistle does. Snapdragon and Thistle prides themselves on sourcing their teas ethically. They've eliminated those pesky middlemen. Damn you, middlemen. After the leaves are picked, your leaves only make two stops before landing at your front door. Y'all, two stops? I'm turning 40 later this year, and I have found that the older I get, the more stops and the more steps it takes me to do just about anything. Snapdragon and Thistle provides the best prices for premium, ethically grown teas so that both your taste buds and your conscience can enjoy your cup of tea. Snapdragon and Thistle is also offering podcast listeners 10% off their next order. All you have to do is go over to snapdragonandthistle.com, that's S-N-A-P-D-R-A-G-O-N-A-N-T-H-I-S-T-L-E.com, that's right, I spelled that whole thing for you, and enter the promo code Mr. West T10. That's M R W E S T T E A 10. Now, I realize I just threw a whole bunch of letters and numbers your way, but while you're processing everything I just gave you, let's just take a moment to bask in the fact that I have my very own promo code, y'all. My very own promo code for T. While we let that just sort of wash over and warm our hearts and souls, let's start the show. I am sitting here over Zoom with Dr. Christopher Nellum. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right, so a quick rundown of your CV. Dr. Nellum currently serves as the Deputy Director of Research and Policy at the Education Trust. It also says here that you are the Founding Director of EdTrust West's Higher Education Research and Policy Team, an educational research politics and policy professor at UC San Diego, and a gubernatorial appointee to the Student-Centered Funding Formula Oversight Committee. Could they have fit more words in that title? Uh, There are just so many words. (laughs) Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I hope you are comfortable. You got your cup of tea? I do. Thank you. Excellent. Ready to go. Excellent, because before we get into today's show, 
I want to start with a quick segment we are calling Intersectionality. <laughs> I like it. Today we're drinking Ceylon Burning Sun. This tea is an award-winning tea. Uh, that's right. This particular tea took first place in the North American Tea Championship in the breakfast blend category. So what makes this tea so great? Well, this tea is a perfect blend of strength and complexity, which is pretty rare for, for breakfast teas. Though it falls into the category of breakfast blend, there's something ever so slightly different about it. It's thick yet bright. Uh, it's got these smooth characteristics and they are complemented perfectly with milk. Although if you're me, I'm a purist. I don't add anything to it, but go ahead. You do you. The milk will give it that little more punch, right? Than what you would have for a regular breakfast blend. It's got a classically thick weighty mouthfeel uh, that breakfasties typically have when you drink it. And it also has these kind of vegetal or fruity notes, depending on you know how you register them on your palate. With all of these qualities that make you want to get started with your day, not to mention the nice shot of caffeine it provides, it's no wonder they call it burning sun because it will make you want to start your day with the energy of a burning sun. Enjoy. So Dr. Nellum, you're probably wondering why we're drinking this complex version of breakfast tea today, right? Like how does how does burning sun tea intersect with how does burning sun tea intersect with education and personal identity? So you know a thing or two about getting out of bed with the passion of a burning sun, but you also know a thing or two about doing things dif differently. So, Dr. Nellum, humbly speaking, as the deputy director at EdTrust West, what is it that A gets you out of bed to take on the great beast of education reform? And B, what is it that EdTrust West does differently to tackle these issues? Yeah, those are good questions. You know, the reason that I get out of bed and do this work every day is because, you know, um, a little bit about my path. You know, I grew up in a low-income community in the Imperial Valley in California. And uh, that experience is, has been um, a guiding force in sort of how I think about the work that I do, education advocacy that I do, my commitments to racial equity. So I get out of bed every day and do this work because I know the real uh, transformative power of education. Um, there are folks who invested in me, uh, you know, very specifically even at Cal State Long Beach, uh, Dr. Person and Dr. Ortiz um, at Long Beach. And those folks um, are some of the reasons why I do this work. I think it's important to invest in people uh, because education can change someone's trajectory, which it did for me. So that certainly gets me out of bed every day. I think it's important to have folks who um, know the experiences um, of the majority of our students these days, who are primarily students of color, primarily low-income students, and also people who bring a passion to this to this work. And so that keeps me going. And you know, part of the reason I came to the Education Trust West is because of I think what makes the organization unique. One is that we have a laser focus on students of color, black and brown and low income students and low income students of color in particular. And I think that's unique. There are lots of advocacy organizations statewide and national that do really, really good work who I respect uh, quite a bit, but I think it's unique to have a laser focus on brown and black and low income students. So that's one thing that we do. I think that's unique. I think there may be two other things that make the work unique. We think about our work as movement building. And so we're not, you know, trying to be wonks who talk about issues in ways that community members are either uninterested in or unable to engage with. And so, you know, white papers are great, but they're certainly not always the most 
accessible format for folks to engage in the work. And so we view this work as a movement. We view this work as a service to communities, community-based organizations, community leaders. And I think that that is unique because there are lots of folks who are okay being wonks and talking to other wonks. And that's sort of how they do their work. That's not sort of what we strive to do. And I think the third thing that makes At Trust West unique is we cover early education, so preschool, through higher education. So we try to think about the work. I'm, as you mentioned, I'm a higher ed guy, but we think about our work holistically as much as possible. So if something's going on in higher ed or something's being proposed in higher ed, we also, we like to think about the immediate impacts in higher ed, but also what does, you know, what does this proposed change mean for K-12 and how can K-12 and higher ed work more collaboratively together? So that's a little bit about us. We've been in California now 20 years, and so we're still refining our model, but we think, you know, we think it's an, an effective one to do the work. All right. So can you talk a little bit more about what's something you are currently working on? What's the thing that's taken up a lot of your bandwidth uh, at Yeah. Health? Right now, I would say there are a couple of issues. So, so there are a lot of things that are keeping us busy these days. Our mission is to identify or elevate equity gaps and then try to find ways to close those gaps um, to better serve communities of color and low-income communities. I think a couple of the issues on our minds right now and certainly on the minds of state policymakers start on, you know, on the early ed front. Or I hope folks know our early ed and pre-K systems have taken quite a beating th- during COVID. Providers have closed at, I think, what folks would you know, not disagree at alarming rates that uh, we're seeing some of those closures. And so I think We've been trying to think about creative solutions for those challenges, especially, you know, with the state has seen some revenues that we weren't expecting. And so there's a lot of interest in using some of those, what they're calling one-time revenues to invest in early ed, in particular early ed providers. And we think that's important for two reasons. One, we know lots of the providers in our state are women and women of color. And so that's certainly an economic and racial equity issue there on the economic front, but also we, we know we have lots of little people who are not getting, you know, the care and attention that they need right now. So we think that's an important issue and we're happy to see that the governor has made some proposed investments there. I think on the K through 12 front, you know, there are a number of issues ranging from, you know, reopening schools or reopening school buildings, rather digital divide issues to assessments, whether or not the state should, you know, still engage in statewide uh, standardized assessments this year. We and a number of civil rights organizations have been thinking about that issue. So it's something that we know the State Board of Education is actually taking up, I think, in two weeks to make a decision. And so we're trying to be really thoughtful about, you know, we know that there are lots of challenges to assessments this year, COVID. We know that the state waived them last year. And the questions we're asking, and we hope that the state will help us figure out sooner, how do we, even in the, the context of the complex environment that we're in, have some understanding of how much learning has happened or not, and not for punitive reasons, but to think about once we come out of this situation, hopefully, using that information in a way that can guide additional resources to the places that need it the most. So that's a very heated conversation that's happening in real time in the state and one that we're trying to contribute to in a thoughtful way. And so that's a huge issue. And on the higher ed side, no, there are, again, lots of issues, but I think one that we're thinking about a lot right now is, well, it's sort of a K through 12 higher education transition issue. 
especially as we think about poverty and how we know poverty rates have gone up in the state, we, we really want to, and the governor has actually made a proposal to find a way to ensure that all schools and districts in the state make sure that all young people complete a financial aid application, a FAFSA or a California Dream Act application. And while that may seem like, you know, not a very you know, critical issue given all of the things happening right now. We have seen steep declines in those applications, which what we know what that will likely lead to. It's just another thing for these kids to have to think about. Yes. And we, we also do on know their that, own. Yep. And fewer of them will likely go to college if they don't understand their, the cost of going to college. And so the governor has proposed um, that that be something that all districts and LEAs in the state make sure young people do. And so we're trying to think about, you know, meaningful ways to make that happen. So those are just a, a sampling of the things on our plate right now um, among the many. The work that you are doing, obviously it's student facing and it's primary, primarily education forward, but given that education is just so intertwined with so many other facets of existence and yeah. it's such a nuanced issue. You mentioned the, all the early education teachers that were out of jobs and how so many of them were particularly were women of color. And it made me think about that business report that came out for December, uh, mm. the jobs report where a hundred percent, statistically speaking, not literally speaking, but statistically speaking, a hundred percent of all the jobs lost were from women. How do you balance what you're doing with education? Is is your Rolodex just filled with partners that go everywhere in terms of what their areas of focus and expertise are? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, the work of course, I think a lot is just my personal thinking about this. You know, there are a number of social determinants of like educational success. So, you know, food, housing, the carceral system, now, you know, folks are thinking more about the digital divide. So the way we do our work and the way that I you know, like to think about my advocacy is, of course, education is the you know, center, sort of the grounding piece of the work. But what we try to do is partner with folks, to your point, who are smarter than us, who have deeper connections in communities of um, related to whatever the issue is. So, you know, we're never going to go out on our own, for example, and do work related to food and housing insecurity. It's certainly a very important topic instead of challenges and issues for education. But say, not, especially within education. Yeah. Yeah. We're not in higher um, ed. Yeah. But we're not, you know, food and housing experts. Right. So we certainly want to par partner closely with those folks and do. So we're, I'm, I'm going to transport you into a hypothetical scenario where uh, COVID is not a thing. We're at a dinner party or a mm -hmm. cocktail party and mm -hmm. you're just sort of chatting and people ask you what you do and you kind of let them know in very simple terms that you really work on education reform. What is something people don't typically know or understand about educational reform? I'm actually less interested in reform and more in transformation of mm. education systems. I very personally, I think that we, big we, you know, the tinkering around the edges, sort of the reform, the reformy sort of approach yeah. to education advocacy, I'm not sure has, is getting us to where we need to be fast enough. And so what I would say is I think we're trying to do two things at once. Look for changes in the system that will improve young people's experiences. So improve the experience of, you know, people going through our systems and also looking for ways to break down, get rid of the systematic things that we know are holding folks back. So I think I would say we're trying to do both. And oftentimes that's a tension that I think is not 
easily discerned by folks who are sort of maybe not sort of in the work. There's certainly a tension uh, between even advocates. Like, are we looking to do this incremental change or are we looking for big transformational things that will change the face of education in our state? I would argue that my commitments and I and at Ed Trust West, we're trying to do both at the same time. And there's often, sometimes folks can't see that maybe we're doing this like incremental thing because our long game is to do something more transformational. So I think that's something that um, folks don't often sort of see on the surface, but is, is happening. Mm. Yeah. So then speaking to that point of transformation, what makes transformation, particularly in education, so difficult? I mean, you could just say people. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say actually fear of change. I think as yeah. humans, we are change averse. Like we want things to be the same. We want to do things the way that we have done them for a number of years. But what I argue is that we have lots of evidence about what needs to be different. And I think what we need more of is at least two things. Well, three. The one, I'll just say, we need more money. We need more revenue for education in California. So that's just a given to me. But the other two things that we need are more educators, folks who have been in classrooms, folks who have been on college campuses, who are engaging in the policy process. We have lots of folks who are doing this work and maybe only went to college and that's their experience. And now they're doing uh, higher education advocacy. Well, that's fine. Uh, But I think even better is if we had VPs and deans and folks from college campuses who, who move into this advocacy space as well. And I think the other is we need electeds to find the political will to do what we know needs to be done. I Part of my frustration is we, we have lots of good at, we have, fortunately, we have really talented patient researchers who have done good work over the years. And there's lots of evidence about what works. We just need people to commit to doing what they know is right, even if it's different. Yeah, it strikes me that education is one of the oldest professions we have in this, on this planet. Yeah. And yet, it is also the one that makes the slowest growth. Yeah. That it's just so steeped in this tradition of, if it was good enough for me, then it's good enough for them. And it it strikes me that medicine would never work this way. Uh, technology Absolutely. would never work this way. You mentioned earlier about people getting into the advocacy roles. How can people, just people, mm-hmm. get more involved in education reform, transformation? Yeah. So a couple of ways, and COVID actually makes it somewhat easier, um, at least if you want to, if folks want to get engaged in statewide uh, policy conversation. So a couple of things come to mind. I think getting affiliated with organizations like the Education Trust or others that are doing statewide advocacy and just staying in the loop, getting the updates. Um, I think another way that I think sometimes folks sort of scoff at when I say it is, if you feel strongly about something, write an op-ed and try to get it, like put your thoughts down on in, on paper and try to get it placed in your local paper. Those things matter. Uh, people who are elected read op-eds. People like me who engage in these conversations do read them. So those are two ways. And I think the third is, you know, COVID, although not perfect, the state is now doing things online. So if you wanted to engage in a CSU trustee meeting 
or the University of California Regent meeting or um, a committee meeting that is happening in Sacramento, you can do that on Zoom now, which, you know, is great. The, the slight drawback is it's still happening during business hours. So, you know, nine to five-ish. So I know that presents different challenges, but you don't have to fly to Sacramento anymore or, you know, go to Long Beach downtown to the chancellor's office. So those are, you know, at least three ways that folks can get involved. Um, I think other, other ways are to get involved in local community-based organizations who oftentimes are also engaging in statewide um, advocacy conversations. I think the most important thing is to know, particularly for educators, is to know, even if you're not asked, that your opinion, perspective, and expertise need to be heard. So go in with that mindset because it's true. Like there's mm-hmm. no one who can tell me that uh, an educator who has been in the classroom on a college campus doesn't have something worthwhile to say at a statewide you know, policy conversation. It's just whether or not we welcome them or provide an opportunity for folks to do that. I want to circle back to something you mentioned earlier. It really resonated with me about uh, working on the edges and reform being kind of small work uh, as opposed to the bigger work that needs. Something that just, this is a selfish question. Apologies to the audience because this is really just about me. (laughs) Something that I struggle with is the pace at which transformation happens uh, and the scope of transformation that does or does not happen. How do you manage your own set of both satisfaction and expectations and sort of how do you classify real wins versus easy wins? So two questions there. I mean, how I manage, it's a struggle. You know, I am often dissatisfied with. That's literally the word I was thinking of. It's I like the, that Hamilton part, you'll never be satisfied, like really hit me when I first heard it. And I was like, man, that is true. And now I know that reference because I watched Hamilton over the holiday break for the first time. Congrats. I'm with you. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm mostly dissatisfied, but I think I'm mostly dissatisfied because I feel like oftentimes uh, folks don't, good, well-intentioned folks don't move with the sense of urgency that I think is like they, they, we must, uh, because there are so many communities that we have maligned, we, the big we, for so long in education spaces that we have to urgently undo the damage that I think we've been doing. So that's, that's a struggle for me. I often have to like, you know, in meetings, if someone is saying something, you know, my face sort of speaks volume. So I have to control my face. And I usually write something down to sort of process what I'm struggling with. So that's how I try to manage. Um, I also, I'm on social media quite a bit. So I also try not to, you know, send tweets when I'm upset. I try to draft them and then think about it later and come back to it because that's, it's a, it's a struggle. I'm just not quite honestly. And if you ask me this a year from now, my answer may be different. But what I'm trying to do now, is, at least from where I sit as an ad, at an advocacy organization, as an advocate and researcher, is to, I, I'm trying to ask more questions, you know, um, to understand. Yeah, what I'm trying to do now is when I see something, I would like to understand, particularly from the group or individuals 
um, organizations pushing for the change. I want to understand how does this win fit in with your long, the long game? Is this a meaningful step on that path or is this low hanging fruit, which, you know, sometimes those things are helpful because it is a building block to something much larger, but oftentimes I'm not sure that people have a long game. And when that's the case, then my dissatisfaction alarm bell start going off because then I know that you don't have a long-term strategy. And I'm also trying to be clearer with folks in our work and my work about what we see as incremental things leading to longer-term things so that people also can understand it. And I think it's hard to tell um, if you don't understand someone's strategy. So I say all of that to say, I try to ask questions to understand. The way I look at educational reform or transformation is it's like Pac-Man. And what I mean by that is so many people think that the game is about just one little pebble every time. Just, hey, you got one pebble, keep getting a pebble. And then you're going to get all the pebbles eventually. And then you win. And to me, I just was like, it almost feels like we should be playing a different game. And the game should be to get rid of all the ghosts. Because if you don't have the ghost, then it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like that that's the threat is 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 the ghost. And if you're playing the game and a ghost gets you, but you got, you know, a third of the board of pellets, like, okay, great. But you know, that's just gonna restart and now you gotta do it all over again. Right. So get rid of the ghosts. And I kind of think that that's where so many people and districts especially are, I think are guilty of this, where they get caught up. They're just, they're just nipping away at those little pellets Hmm. and not trying to get rid of the ghosts. Hmm. That resonates with me. I think a lot, I mean, one of the example that comes to mind is our friends down at Valverde in um, the district down in SoCal. And I think they have also been on this journey that they can tell much better than me, but They've been on this journey to make sure that all of their students complete financial aid forms. And rather than set up a a program, which I would maybe, maybe that's one of the pellets, they decided to think about a big structural thing that would help them sort of attack maybe one of these ghosts. I'm terrible at analogies or metaphors, but I'm trying. You're you're Um, doing it. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. uh, So, you know, they decided for them, it was important that they set a goal to make sure every young person completes a financial aid form and they even made it a graduation requirement. And I know the word requirement like start makes some people crazy, but for them, it was about setting expectations that the, the fiddling around the edges wasn't enough for them and they needed something more mm-hmm. transformative and comprehensive. And so I agree. I think that that's a helpful way to think about it. And I think we need to figure out what those ghosts are. Actually, we know what the ghosts are. That's what I'm saying. Com- we need to commit to getting rid of them and it does require resources, but I don't think a, a struggle that I have is that in lots of contexts, folks will say I need more resources, which is likely true. However, there are also innovative ways that folks can work within what we have now mm-hmm. differently. And that's the hard part that I think folks often struggle with. Yes, I know we have constrained resources. I know folks are really well-intentioned and working really hard. I don't think there are many educators who go to work and who aren't committed to the job and to getting the work done. But I think in our haste to do that sometimes, we don't take a step back and look at what we can do differently with what we have. 
Yeah, it just it just sometimes yeah. feels like we're we're doomed to lose because we have these actors conspiring against us and we're trying to play their game and not change the game. I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. Yep. Well, I want to switch gears for a quick second. I want to glance, just glance at national politics. Oh, no. of course this also, okay. Well, this also of course applies to statewide politics, right? And mm-hmm. as we transition away from the policies put forth by the Betsy DeVos administration, I really wonder how lasting an impact a one-term secretary of education can actually have, right? Is her impact, are we overrating, underrating, or properly rating the impact she has on education? It's a complicated question. So I think about it on a couple of levels. I think if you think there are things that the previous administration did that impacted in very real ways, undocumented folks, LGBTQ folks, survivors, all that, that things that were that that administration did that had very real impacts on young people that will, I don't know if, you know, they'll ever get over it, you know, process it or work through it. And so I think on that level, I think there are certainly lasting effects for sure. I think on the policy level, you know, a one-term administration, I think that there will be a real need for the new secretary to come in and to use the bully pulpit in a way that is focused on helping and supporting and driving messages about what education must do in this country. And so I think that that can have some immediate um, impacts on just the role of a secretary of education is not to harm people. It's actually to be supportive and think about how to drive, you know, messaging and resources across the country. And on the policy front, you know, I think they're going to be able to undo some of, you know, I think about that administration as spending lots of its time undoing what was done in the Obama administration. And so if I, if I had hopes for this new administration, uh, and I have lots of friends that are moving that direction or back in DC. And so what I know from them and hope that they will do is to make very intentional decisions about undoing the undoing that that previous administration did. So I think while there are some lasting effects, I do think that there are some very real opportunities that this administration will seek to undo very quickly. Things on student loans, undocumented students, LGBTQ students, for-profit schools and institutions, all sorts of things that were either undone or weakened that I think they will now move to strengthen and set us back on a better path. So you just named a bunch of things. In your view, is there a roadmap for undoing these harmful policies or even just like a clear first step? Yeah, that's a good question. I think a good first step is to have a plan that is informed by educators. And I'm not sure that we had that in the previous administration. And so I'll be excited to see the new secretary and the, you know, the Department of Ed does in that regard. I think having a plan with goals that are equity centered, I think is an extremely important first step. So I want to bring you back to your comfort zone of California. We live in a state that is the world's fifth largest economy. What happens in California has economic reverberations around the world. Mm. Some would argue that we really can't say the same about education. So what can we do to better serve as a national, if not global leader in education policy? In California, 
Yeah. Oh, so many things. You know, I think one of the things that California is doing well at and maybe can do better that I think will serve as a model is to continue to think about equity-based funding models. So models that recognize that not all schools are created equally. Um, Not all schools have been, schools, colleges, whatever the context is, have been fairly resourced to find, continue to fine tune our funding model such that we find ways to drive additional resources to where we know the the neediest communities, neediest students are. So in K-12, we have the local control funding formula that is attempting to do that. Uh, we have in higher ed the student-centered funding formula that is attempting to, you know, parts of that model, that funding formula, I would call our equity center that drive additional resources. So I think if we can fine-tune that, get it right, and appropriately fund each of those formulas, so find new revenue, uh, commit new revenue so that we're People struggle with this language, but fully funding both of those models so that we are sure there's enough money in the formulas to do, to give the schools and colleges the resources we know that they need. I think if we get that right, I think we will be as cutting edge as I know Californians are and should and can be. So that's one thing. I think another that is squarely in higher ed on higher education issues, we have to get financial aid fixed mm. in the state. We know what's you know, we, we have friends and colleagues at the Institute for, for College Access and Success, uh, also known as TICAS, that have for a long time made the case that financial aid, state-based, need-based financial aid in California, the Cal Grant, is outdated, is in, insufficiently addressing students' needs. It's a, the Cal Grant, you know, not to get too wonky, but the Cal Grant focuses on tuition and has primarily been a tuition-driven financial aid program. But we all we all live in California. And back to the issue that that we the issues that we touched on earlier, it's expensive to live here. And we know that the cost of going to college is not just tuition. It's books and food and for many of our students, childcare, internet, and the Cal Grant is not sufficiently supporting students with the aid that they need to afford to go to school. So I think if we also get our financial aid right, I think we will change the face of how states are thinking about aid across the country. So I'm of the belief, this is just me personally speaking, yeah, especially in California, that this is not going to be the last time distance learning is a thing. I think between fires, other natural disasters, I kind of think that we've hit We've crossed a threshold that this will not be the only pandemic we experience in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. It's become extremely clear that in order to function with distant learning, Zoom, like how we're doing this, yeah, is an absolute necessity. Yes, And in order to be able to actually use Zoom along with anything else, you must have not just internet, but high quality, high speed internet. And I'm wondering if we have determined this already just in the logistics of it, how is high-speed internet not something covered under Williams Law? Yeah, you know, we've been thinking about uh, certainly this issue more since COVID hit. And there's been lots of conversation in K-12 through and higher ed about basic needs. Internet is probably one of those basic needs. It's probably a utility that um, should be uh, treated like any other 
um, you know, service that we know that all people need, like water, uh, you know, something that is either highly subsidized or covered uh, by the government. It's something that we've been advocating for um, this year. So, yeah, certainly, I think we need to figure out a new way to do that. We've been proposing like a sort of three-legged stool around these issues, certainly internet, but also devices. Mm. And then the part that is less malleable is the home environment. Um, yeah. Because we just, you know, even if you have the device and the high-speed internet, if you have three other, you know, siblings or two right. other adults in the house that need to be on internet at the same time, like what does that mean for a quality of time and learning? So we well, agree, like, I agree. Well, we're, you know, we're giving kids hotspots. And if you have more than one person on that hotspot at a time, you may as well not have a hotspot because it just right. eats it up. And that's why we see kids going to parking lots of Taco Bell and other universities to try to get this internet so that they can get that education. It's 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 quite something. It's, um, I've actually been, again, with the disappointment, I think I've been disappointed um, in the speed with which the state has tried to address this challenge. I think we've, they've taken shots at getting it right. They've deployed resources, but we don't have good measurement of what the need is. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to target resources. It doesn't mean that it can't be done. We just haven't done it. We tried to do it at, at Trust West and we tried to estimate what the digital you know, gaps are in K-12 and higher ed and gave that to the state and others. And I think it's helped but we need a statewide approach, um, if not a federal approach, but certainly a statewide approach to making sure that pandemic or not, young people, students, communities have access to internet. One of the, you know, this is certainly not education related, but you know, we're requiring people to go online in most counties to sign up for COVID vaccines. And if you don't have internet, it will likely make that public health challenge harder too. So if there's any case for thinking about internet as a public utility. I think we have plenty of them now, both in education and public health. Plenty of reasons why. Yeah, there's a district I used to work for. Uh, they decided during the pandemic they were going to give every every one of their students a new MacBook so that they can do this at home. Mm. And I thought, well, congrats. You just gave them a $1,000 paperweight because if they don't have the internet and the quality internet to use it, then what is it? Um, and I know that sounds like we're ending on a negative note, but the positive side of it is that there, there's money and resources out there. We just need people like you, Dr. Nellum, to show them how to use it. <laughs> I hope, I mean, I hope, you know, the work that we're doing is helpful. And I think, you know, we have a lot, like I said earlier, we have lots of really good committed advocates and folks in Sacramento. I think we need, we, the, you know, all of us, need to find ways to coordinate our messages that they're hearing and to put pressure on these folks to do what's right. I think what folks often forget is electeds work for us and we should treat them that way, you know, treat them respectfully, but remind them that they work for us. And if we're not satisfied and either they need to not be in office or they need to listen to the people who know best. And in my mind, that's educators. All right. So we've come to the bittersweet part of this interview. Bittersweet because on the one hand, I'm sad that the interview is coming to an end. This conversation is coming to an end. But on the positive side, I get to learn one more thing from you. I get, I get a task I get to walk away with. At the end of every episode, I ask my guests to assign 
an extra credit assignment to myself and all the pod class members. It can be a book or TV show to check out, a type of food to try. It can be uh, an exercise to do, some advice, literally anything you want. That's why it's extra credit. So what is an extra credit assignment you would like to assign to the pod class audience? Good question. So I, you know, I, in addition to like the work that I do, of course, you know, education, I'm a huge like mental health uh, advocate. Mm. So I would suggest that everyone do something for their mental health. If it doesn't, if it, you know, I know that finding a therapist is challenging. Some folks maybe don't have insurance. So if you can't do that, get a journal. I think it's, you know, we have all been through a very long, what is it? 10 or 11 months now. Even before the pandemic, I've been a big, a huge advocate of mental health. And so do something for your mental health. It could be taking a walk, getting a journal. And if you want to go far along the spectrum, you know, find a therapist and someone who can be there to support you. It's not only good for your mental health, but I think it makes us better professionals too, to have a space that's ours every week or every two weeks that you know is your time. So yeah, do something good for your mental health. I love that. I was just in a symposium where the question was brought up about how do we, as a society, get over the hurdle where mental health is not seen as a privilege? Yes, I think we, you know, I know we're coming to an end. I think we have to talk about it more. Folks who have, are privileged enough to have engaged in, you know, therapy need to talk about what, how they benefited and also share there are some nuances that I learned along the way on how you can get your insurance to cover it and out of pocket and out of network stuff. And so talking about it and sharing tips and tricks, I think is one way to make it, um, at least therapy, uh, less of a privilege. Wow, you're, you're, you're like a living example of that uh, internet meme where it's th- therapists hate him for this one hack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Ellen, for coming on the show. Anything you want to promote, a website, social media platform, anything you want to promote? Well, I, you know, I certainly invite everyone to get in touch with us at the Education Trust. Um, I think edtrustwest.org. And then please follow me on Twitter, uh, the at sign Chris Nellum. And we'd love to continue to engage with folks. Thank you so much again for coming on the show. It was a great conversation. I am going to walk away thinking about this for a while. Thank you. Appreciate the invite. Okay, that is our show. I want to thank our very special guest, Dr. Christopher Nellum, for joining us. And thank you, my pod classmates, for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, don't be a stranger. Reach out. Let me know. I can be found on all social media platforms with the username at TeachMeMrWest. I can also be reached via email at podclasspod, that's podclasspod at gmail.com. Now, I know I've mentioned this before, but this is a new and exciting show for a lot of us, which means we really need all the help we can get letting the world know just how great it is. So if you wouldn't mind, please go to wherever you get your podcasts and go ahead and give this show a five-star rating and maybe even a little review if it's not too much trouble. If reviews aren't your thing, why not encourage everyone you know to subscribe to the show? Look, this pandemic is headed towards its end. I can feel it. And when it does end, we're not going to know how to have normal small talk with people. It's going to be a lot of, so COVID is pretty terrible, huh? So go ahead and encourage everyone you know to subscribe to PodClass. And when you're making smooth transitions to any one of the topics covered in this show, you'll thank me. 
Until next time, Podclass Dismissed.